0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, companies, and ideas that stand out and hopefully inspire you and provide some education and some entertainment along your road less traveled. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. NetSuite is the platform for growth. And they're offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So check out NetSuite.com slash different. That's NetSuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about a great podcast that I love called The Mission Daily. It was one of Apple's top podcasts for 2018. And uh, one of my favorite episodes is with uh, Alec Baldwin called The Art of Storytelling. Check out The Mission Daily podcast wherever you get legendary podcasts. All right, on this episode, Ashley Goodall. He's the author of a groundbreaking new book called Nine Lies About Work. And can I tell you, I just love the title. (laughs) You know, and if you're a regular listener, you know that I'm curious about anything that's different, anything that's counter, anything that uh, goes against common wisdom to blow open some new thinking. And I think that's what Ashley has done with his new book. He's the Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence, at um, networking giant Cisco. And this is a smart, fun, sometimes silly, highly unpredictable, but highly insightful conversation, digging into Ashley's real research that is uh, sort of the foundation of this book about what's wrong with work and what we can do about it. We talk about why words matter. We slay the idea of uh, work-life balance. Uh, uh, slay the idea of being well-rounded, and we go deep on how you can nurture the human spirit at work. And um, listen for the part of our discussion where we stumble into a, a interesting discussion about love. Yeah, love. And there's a whole lot more. I think you're gonna love this one. Um, and um, this is a good, another great example of The Power of a Dialogue podcast, um, because this is a far-ranging, riveting conversation with a very seriously smart, experienced, counterintuitive guy. For more, go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes and how to pick up a copy of Ashley's new book. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
1: there's really very few things in life um, that you can't and shouldn't smile at at some point. And in a way, the more serious the topic, the more important it is to find little moments of levity and humor. And so that's a very important way of actually the part of part of the way I think about the world is, um, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. You've got to be I mean, some of the things you're referring to, you know, there are one, one. Somebody actually wrote to me a little while ago and said um, that there's an example in there in one of the chapters where, for reasons which are too bizarre to maybe get into right now, we start to calculate the number of atoms in an ox, and <laughs> went to great pains to actually do the math and figure out what the answer was, and then to write a footnote including the number of atoms in an ox. And somebody actually picked up on it, um, actually a colleague of mine at Cisco, who I didn't know, wrote me a note and said, by the way, I checked your math, and you're about right. And I'm you're a about right. <laughs> well, he said I'm a nuclear physicist, so I, it matters to me that the numbers are right. So that was just this lovely little moment of, um, you know, somebody got the, 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 the humor, because who really knows, and that's sort of the point, and it's also sort of not the point. And at the same time, it double-checked our math for us. I thought that was lovely.
0: I also appreciate doing fun shit with footnotes. Oh, my God, yes. I we, mean, we did it with my first book, and I don't think we did anywhere near enough of it with my second book. And I'm uh, fast at work on my third book, and we're going to do it again in the third book. Because well, having funny or silly footnotes, especially in a business book, is a blast, isn't it? It's got to be, and it's... um. Yeah, so it's a couple of things at once
1: for me. I suppose it's um, it's, it's like this is what hyperlinks were before hyperlinks um, because it's like the parallel conversation. And, you know, we were very insistent. At one point, the publisher said, look, can we take all these notes you've written and just stick them all in the back and make them end notes?" And we actually said, for many of them, yes, because if it's just a reference or whatever, so there are endnotes. But at the same time, we said, no, some of these are very deliberately written to be experienced in parallel as a sort of commentary on yes. the that that's going along. And, and,
0: and I are, like that the footnote is on the page and not an end. I'm a dyslexic guy and I have ADHD. And so if you make me go somewhere, back and I'm back going to back. see a 100 zebras and naked ladies on the trip there and I will have right. no idea what I'm looking for. <laughs> you'll never come back. I mean, no, you'll I'll be not. off. I'll be off in a different... Well, and this is the other thing. I, there's many things I want to compliment you about your book on. But one of the other things I appreciate is, uh, and not that I don't enjoy books that you need to read sequentially. Some books are set up that way for a reason and and, and so be it. But uh, again, with sort of my, I call it, um, you know, I have ADHD and dyslexia and a bunch of these other things. So I just call it dysfucklia. Um And if you have dysfoccalia, a book like this is great because it, you could just open up any page and go, okay, people can can reliably rate, rate each other. And you're like, hmm, why is he writing about this? And then you can just start reading any part of the page, and there's going to be something fascinating within a sentence that's or a two. Start. And so you can just read this book any which way you want.
1: <laughs> well, that's interesting, because um, I wouldn't know how to deliberately set out to write it to be like that. And it, And in all candor, it wasn't designed to be dipped into completely at random in the way that you just illustrated um but at the same time you do make you do as you i mean you know this but you read a you write a book and there's a draft and then there's edits and then there's a draft and then there's an edit and a little bit. and during the course of this whole thing you sit down with a complete manuscript and read it through 20 times um which at 10 hours a pop is 200 200 hours of reading your own stuff and that's that's separate from the actual reading it while you're editing it. That's just sit in an armchair, for me at least, and read the whole thing. And so you do hold yourself, I think, or you try and hold yourself to the standard of, don't be boring on a page. Yeah. Don't be boring. Be going somewhere. Yeah. Know where the somewhere is. So maybe that shows up in, in what you're responding to.
0: Yeah, and I think you can always tell, you know, it's clear that you and Marcus had fun and like each other and all that stuff. You can You can feel... Um, you can feel the vibe of the folks who wrote this book when you read it and and that comes across. And so what I'm happy about in this regard is, uh, yeah, I've consumed more books in the last two years, um, than I think probably easily the last decade. you know, somebody who's, who's got all the shit I've got reading a book is a big commitment, but we have lots of authors on and, and I don't think it makes any sense to have an author on unless you read the book. Um, And so anyway, long story longer, I'm getting used to consuming books in a way that I haven't been historically. And certainly with sort of uh, business oriented books, I think we are now starting to see more business books being written in more human ways. And I think you guys have done a wonderful job of that.
1: Well, it's funny to go through. Um, Thank you. That's very generous of you. And and certainly something that matters to us a lot. Um, It is interesting to walk up and down the business bookshelf if you go to one of those physical bookstore things um and pick random business books from from the shelf and i think you're fine i think you're right there are more and more that actually are, are written as though they have been written by a human being with some fluency in the english, english language um there are many still which are um depressing though yeah um, and so i think you know, I mean, Marcus and I both take writing extremely seriously, and and audience extremely seriously, and prose extremely seriously. So we're trying to write a business book that's actually readable.
0: Yeah. Well, you did a great job. Now, um, you know, I've, I've forewarned you that I'm a bee bopper around, and so I sort of wanted to start more towards the end, if that's okay with you, because one of these ones in here is one that has made me nuts. For years, Ashley, just like actually a couple of them, the potential one I want to get to second, but where I want to start is the one that like is one of my big hot button things that makes me nuts. And that's this bullshit about work-life balance. Because I've always thought when I, you know, I think I'm a student of languaging and and, in particular the use of words to create changes in thinking. Mm -hmm. So I listen to the way people use words, or at least I try to. And work-life balance makes it sound like I have this life and there's this thing over here called work. And then there's this thing over here called my real life. And I'm not my real self at work. And so I'm trying to... Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, the paradigm is all fucked up, I think. But I, I just love that you wrote about this. So um, tell me, A, about why this mattered uh, to both you guys. And then B, you know, what were some of the things that you learned that we found were most remarkable?
1: Yeah, so I'm with you on the you know, words have meanings. And by the way, you, you you say that, and a lot of people will say, "Yeah, but we all know what it means." Don't get hung up on the actual words; it's the concept. And you, I, you know, that it's understandable where that comes from, but I think it's wrong. And I, I think you have to say, "No, the concept is in the words. That's all that there is. That's what those words are. Our containers for concepts. Get the container right, and you might do the right thing. Get the container wrong, and we're all going to be confused." Um, you you are sort of where it comes from. The genesis of this book is actually annoyance in many many places. Now, um, a book about all the stuff that annoys the two of us is actually going to be inordinate fun to write and crashingly boring to read.
0: Well, so, you've got you know a, a, is a is a you know I was born in Canada, lived in the, Mer- in the United States of America for uh, in excess of twenty years, but I'm of Scottish descent as the name would suggest, right? So I have a particular affinity for the um sort of um uh, cynical slightly pessimistic but yet funny and, and you know in a sort of um I was listening to you on some other podcasts and you were you were talking about John Cleese and I thought it was funny that a guy like you was talking about John Cleese oh, right? I you know I, you I have I, a John cleese about you I guess <laughs> well I don't know I'm not I'm not 18 feet tall
1: um um it's really interesting, you know, I, I grew up obviously in the UK, I've been in the US for 20 some years. And um, it's in a way, it's not true that, that a country has a particular culture any more than it's true that a company has a particular culture. It's all local, and it's all who you know, and it's all what you run around in. At the same time, there is a vein that the Brits, I think, have developed, um, certainly since the middle of the last century, of um ironic banter laden um slightly bemused and sometimes completely pointless humor. <laughs> and i have a very very special place in my yes. heart for that i love it very much um and so that all matters and annoyance by the way so there's a there's what you you got us going on Monty Python, so now you're in for it. Um, <laughs> um, there's a skit in one of the Monty Python things where a guy walks into a room and says, "I'm I've come for an argument." Do you know that skit? Yeah, it's called. I, a, I I do remember this. And he goes in and says, "I want an argument," and the person starts contradicting him. It's like a
0: massage parlor for arguments. You you, yeah, buy arguments. Like, you
1: go down the hall and you go through. You know, the, I I'd like an argument, please. Okay, door four. So he goes in door four, and the guy. So he says, I'm here for an argument. And the other guy says, no, you're not. And he says, yes, I am. He says, no, you're not. And they go back pointlessly, wasting everybody's time with this darn skit. And then the guy says, by the way, how much is this? Or time started or something. And they realize he's walked through the wrong door. And he's walked through the door into the remarked contradiction. And actually, <laughs> argument is next door. And so <laughs> at this point, we've wrapped stupid and pointless inside three different layers of stupid and pointless. And it's all... If you get it, it's gloriously silly. Oh. And if you don't get it, it's just daft,
0: really. You know, it's sort of that, it. that, that sketch I remember very well, and they have many others, particularly in the earlier times, I think, that are sort of, in my mind, uh, the UK equivalent of sort of uh, Who's On First with Abbott and Costello. Yeah, this exactly. You're a comedy genius, and it's complete stupidity. And and by the way, joy in words. So what's what's
1: what's really interesting about all these things to come back to the words matter is how joyful the language is as part of this, and how playing with language is just kind of, um, you know, it's an it's an irrepressible grin. Um, not not necessarily in the listener, but you see the people doing this, and you can imagine them writing it and just giggling like yes. silly boys. Yes. So I don't know what that's got to do with work-life balance, but bloody hell words matter.
0: Yeah, um, exactly. And, an because annoyance. they change yeah, thinking, absolutely. right? And I, I get the point that context matters, right? If the CEO of IBM gets on a conference call to talk about their earnings and she says, good afternoon, fuckers. That's going to go one way. And if you know uh, Dave Chappelle gets up in front of an audience and says, Good evening, fuckers. It's going to go it's another way. Um, um, so context matters, but to your point, the words of the thing, right? <laughs> the words are the the words of the thing. So yeah, so this started.
1: You know, many of the chapters started out with, "Okay, what's what's actually really annoyed us for a while?" or or thinking about it, what are what are some of the other things that we think really need to be said more clearly because we've been sloppy in our thinking and. You know, work-life balance. As you you've you've picked it, it's sloppy. There are three sloppinesses: one is work, one is life, and one is balance. Other than that, so it's, it's a pretty solid concept, I suppose.
0: Um, and well, and the other thing that I can't stand about it, if you sort of are at all a student of, of history and a little bit of human evolution, um, your life was your life, right? So if you depending on how far back you want to go, but you know, if you go back to when people were farmers and cobblers, and most people were small, what today you'd call a small business person of one sort or of another. And so if you were a farmer or you were a pharmacist or you were whatever you were, you were engaged in the family business a meaningful amount of your time. And then sometimes you took time off and you did things. And then, and then, and and it's more of a, it's, to me, it's more about sort of ebbs and flows of things than balancing of anything. Well, and, and
1: uh, yes, the so balance is precarious and who's ever going to achieve it? And if you do, good luck because someone's going to knock you off very, very quickly. So it's a, in a way, we, we've spent a lot of time saying, here's an unattainable goal, best of luck, which is a weird thing to say. Um, but I think there's something actually a little bit more, more pernicious about it, um, which is that the implication is all the stuff in work is bad and all the stuff in life is good. And your job in order to lead a fulfilled life is to have enough of the little sugar in life to sprinkle it over the badness and the bitter taste of work. Uh, That's what we're sort of told to do in a way. I don't think anybody, to put it in the converse way, I don't think anyone is running around in the world today going, oh, my God, my life is so miserable. I need to work more. So you flip it on its head and it's like, yes, we are actually saying life is the antidote to work. Now, A, that's a misrepresentation of life, which for me contains great things and not so great things, depending on, I don't know, whether the taxes are due um, or the dishwasher's full, all those sorts of things. Um, but what's really criminal about that is it does such a disservice to the, to the wonderfulness of work. And if we, and it sort of gives up right at the beginning and says, you know what, this work stuff, yeah, it's pretty toxic, isn't it? We need to build a containment vessel around it, and the containment vessel is life. So here you go, and it it mutes instantly our curiosity about um, what is work like when you're on fire, what is work like when you are in flow, what is work like when you are growing and making a huge impact, and how can you get more of that. Well, if the prescription is just take all that toxicity and balance it out with life, you're never going to ask those questions. And I think that's such a crying shame.
0: Absolutely. Amen.
1: Hallelujah, brother. Um, that was a bit ranty. I'm sorry. Was that? No, no. I'm, I'm really good with ranting. It's, like, it's super annoying. No, no. I'm, I'm really helpful. And anything, I'm going to go ranting again, but... Um, one of the themes of the, all, all of this stuff that we wrote about is, my goodness me, if we're not careful, we point our curiosity at the wrong darn things. When we point our curiosity at failure rather than success. We point our curiosity at, you know, um, a pathology rather than high-functioning. We point, and and one of, one of the sort of pleas, P-L-E-A-S, in the book is, my God, let's point our curiosity at some better targets, shall we? Because there are so much better ones out there. What's different about each person, not what do they have in common? What makes a human being unique is a beautiful thing to be curious about. What is a human at their highest function? What does that look like? Um, What are what do we all need in order to thrive, and what do we all need differently in order to thrive? Beautiful things to be curious about, but somehow we've we've reached a bunch of conclusions about the world of work that have said, you know what, those th- those are lu- it's a luxury to be curious about those things. You can be, you can be, if you want, if you've got time at the end of a long week, be curious about what lights somebody up. But really, that's a luxury. That's what the world of work says, and we're saying. That's such a horrible, horrible mistake. Because what lights somebody up is all we've got. That's the best bit of a human. Well, so if we're not allowing ourselves space to be curious about one another, then then really, what's the point?
0: Well, and here's the other thing: your book sits in a context for me that um, that is fascinating. We had uh, Jim Harder on, and he's the chief scientist at Gallup, and Gallup did the largest. Uh, survey ever of employees and managers. 37 million is the number that sticks in my head, but it's definitely in the 30 millions. It's a giant fucking number. And they came out with this new book based on the insights of that research called It's the Manager. Anyway, one of the big data points is 66% of American workers report they're not engaged at work. Right. Okay. And then Scott Galloway, who we had on, his new book comes out. It's called The Algebra of Happiness. Unbelievable book, just like Harder's book. And one of the things he looks at is data on happiness. And he says, when you graph it, it's a smile. That is to say, in the, from sort of zero to 20, you're fairly happy. He calls 25 the shit gets real age. And then from 25 to 45, 50, there's a huge dip because shit gets busy and you're making people and spouses and you're spending a hugely disproportionate amount of your time at work, which for most people fucking sucks. See the harder mm-hmm. research, right? And then, and then, so you sort of look. I sit, step back and go, "Well, harder says most people think work sucks," and then uh, uh, Galloway says most people have this huge dip in happiness for twenty to thirty years in their fucking life as they eat shit sandwiches at work.
1: Well, and it, <laughs> we're by not the talking way, the, about it. The the work sucks stuff depends on how you measure and whose measurement you look at. Um, you know, Marcus Marcus did a. Study published a study really recently which said um, something like sixteen um, percent of us are fully engaged at work, so that would be eighty four percent aren't I think that's the number 'm I'm, I'm, okay so it's it's, it's getting worse <laughs> well it it there's it, it a little bit of depends how you count um, but really what we should do is we should say all right well what what happens when it works so there 's a uh, there's a funny thing that, again, we humans have decided. I don't know. I, I wasn't consulted when the decision was made, clearly, because I'm about to disagree with it. But um, we, we've decided that in order to create high function, you should take low function and invert it. You should just figure out what's broken and do not that, and then you'll get great. Um, because we imagine the world only has two categories in it. We imagine the world has a category called great and a category called broken in fact it's got three categories and this is the trick there's a middle category so if you take bad and invert it you get not not bad but not bad is the middle category the category we want is the top category which is good great brilliant um and actually what you do is if you want to understand high functioning you have to study high functioning you can't study pathological functioning and then just do the opposite of it there's research on marriage that tells you do You, you mean studying serial killers won't make you Mother Teresa? Exactly. Exactly. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes not bad is the thing you want. So if you study airline crashes, you get planes that don't crash, which is not bad. And also, we would say, sort of important. What you don't get is a delightful experience of flying. You, you get a, a survivable
0: experience of flying, which is a good thing to have. Which is probably, if I'm working on the spec, it's probably number one, isn't it?
1: Survivable, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we'd go for survivable and miserable ahead of uh, delightful and you're dead now. Yes. I think, yeah, so the, so the hierarchy is pretty clear. But we're pretty good at survivable, and <laughs> arguably, we've got a ways to go on delightful um to get particularly if you're
0: united airlines
1: well no comment um um, particularly you know the way the way that you get the really good bit is you study what works and how do you turn it up to 11. um you don't study what doesn't work and just invert it the whole time there's another i'll give you a different example because um this is uh, we're so strongly wired to go just remove all the mistakes and we'll have perfection and you won't ever Um, um So sometimes folks will say, well, look at this, actually. If somebody says, um, in a meeting, let's imagine that there's somebody in a meeting and they, they preface every comment with, um, we should tell them not to say, um, if we think it makes them look stupid or something. Right. And you go, okay, you can do that. By the way, it's very hard for a person to do. And there's some research suggesting that um is actually a word and we all understand what it means. It means, I haven't finished yet, and I'm going to think. Sometimes I'm going, to say going. Something else. and so it functions like any other words, and we all understand that that's a word. Um, but anyway, you can you can ask somebody to stop saying "um," and they can try very hard, and they don't say "um." Okay, well done. Do you now have a great contribution to a meeting? No, you just have a "um" free contribution. Are their ideas now better? No, they're the same ideas they were in the first place are they maybe better presented? Maybe in some case, yes. But have we made a great meeting by removing the word um from it? No, in no way have we done that. If you want to make a great meeting, the conversation you have with somebody afterwards is not about um, it's about when you said that thing that that when you said, when you made that particular comment, that was fascinating. And for me, powerful, where did that come from? And could you do it again? So, We don't ever ask the series of questions that follow the words, good job. We go, all right, Chris, you did really well. Good job. And now I've forgotten about you and I'm off to something else because I've patted you on the head in a slightly patronizing way. Um, Good job is the beginning. The, The question is what comes after good job. It's good job. Here's what I saw. Here's what my experience was now then. Let's interrogate the, heck, the shit out of that, shall we? Because if we can figure out what that moment of high performance was, we can get more of it. We can't ever find our way there by just talking about your low performance and trying to remediate
0: that. It said in another way, if you're a young Steph Curry and you figure out that, you know what, you're starting to have success with sinking this three – then. Maybe what there is to do is spend a lot of time on the threes. And the, all these things you're talking to, is, 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 I love this um, this lie number four, because this has been another one for me, that people are well-rounded. They're fucking not. We and have, that's you know, the best I, bit. So, so I'm not, sorry to interrupt you. but Interrupt <laughs> me. <laughs> like everyone goes, well, wouldn't it be better if people were well-rounded? And you go, have you thought about that for a second? How-? You want your brain surgeon to be well-rounded? No, and I don't your want brain people- surgeon's a really good concert pianist, you probably have the wrong brain surgeon. <laughs> yeah, you want him to
1: be weirdly good at brain surgery, and if he's weirdly bad at explaining what he's doing to you, then who cares? That's the that's the thing. It's funny, um you, you went to you went to sports and um and we were talking earlier about annoyance. Um so obviously Wimbledon final on Sunday. When you and I are talking, at any rate, it was, what, two days ago? And uh, I, I watched a little bit. Now, it was complicated. There was also a cricket game going on, which for we weird people in Britain is a very important thing, and they were simultaneous. So it's not it was,
0: a conflict of interest for me.
1: <laughs> no, I can imagine. But if, for me, it was a colossal. So I had an iPad and a TV going all at the same time. Um, and so I was just watching the tennis with the sound turned down because I was listening to the cricket sound. And I was watching Federer run around his backhand, and every time he runs around his backhand and you watch him as a viewer, you're like, thank God, okay, because he was having trouble with the backhand and his forehand is a glorious, glorious thing. So he keep running around the backhand. And um, we, we mentioned this in chapter four, which is what brought it to mind. Um, the coaching that we get at work is stop running around your backhand. Like it's a bad thing to do. You're avoiding a weakness. Don't. Don't avoid your weaknesses. Um, But the phrase running around your backhand comes from watching tennis players run around their backhand, which they do so as to play to a strength instead. So it's like that's one where we're 180 degrees off in our understanding of what the phrase means. We've said the phrase means it's a bad thing to do. But in fact, the phrase is, this is what you see superstar athletes doing. They run around their back ends because they want to play to their strengths because they're spiky
0: as all hell. If you're legendary at slinging code, you should sling code. That's why product marketing as a function was created so the engineers didn't have to talk to the world, <laughs> at least yeah. in part. No, it's true. and 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 I think this is one most people don't understand. You know, you talk to a legendary athlete and we've been lucky enough to have a bunch of them join us. They're not, they're not well-rounded people, right? And, I, you know, I, I mean, in my own life, I'm very good at a very few things, and I'm stunningly useless at virtually everything else.
1: Well, we're all stunningly useless at virtually everything because we can do like 10 things well, and how many things can a human being do? Millions and millions and millions. So, you know, 10 to the 7 things we suck at and 10 that we don't suck at. Okay, the, the, the smart play is, is figure out what the 10 are. But the funny thing is that um, this this one, like the work-life balance thing in a way, it's it's really, really persistent. And I think the persistence of it, this idea that people should be all around, it actually comes from fear because it's actually fear of failure that's sitting just beneath all of this. Oh my goodness me, if there's something you need to do and you can't do it, you will fail. And if I'm the team leader, my team member's gonna fail. If I'm the parent, my kid is gonna fail. And so it's sort of like well-roundedness is an insurance policy. I don't know what you're going to finish up doing in life. I want you to be not sucky at most of it. So be well-rounded. And I suppose what we should say in response is, well, insurance policy is one thing and excellence is another thing. And be careful that you don't insure your way out of the possibility of excellence, by the way, by having people work on things they're never going to be any good at. Um,
0: The other thing too, actually, is uh, on a personal level, and I'm going to say this out loud in part just to hear how it sounds and and, and also in part to get your reaction, but a big part of our enjoyment in life and certainly in work is the amount of time we spend doing something that we are uniquely qualified, talented, good, interested in, uh, etc. Right. If we're doing something we're good at on a regular basis, the likelihood we're going to be successful and happy increases.
1: Yeah, and the research says that. That's not just wishful thinking. That's practical thinking. Um, you find us where our energies are, and we will spend more time there, and practice does actually help with these things. Um, and But also, you, you locate somebody where they're energized, and they're also more creative. They're more innovative. They Spend more time puzzling things through. They're more resilient. I mean, there's a bunch of good stuff that CEOs would want in their employees: creativity, resilience, (laughs) problem-solving, collaboration. Okay, you get those things if you have people doing the stuff that that energizes them the most. Um, And weirdly enough, you go back all the way to the way that humans human brains grow, and you find a biological reason for this. Um, which is that we, uh, the brain grows more where it already has the greatest density of neurons and synaptic connections. Um, cause it's easiest. So brain growth is, is sort of in a weird way, lazy. It's easier to put a new connection where there's this bunch of other connections. Cause I don't have to run such a long wire. I don't have to build a new blood supply all the way over to here. So Um, The way to think about it is you imagine a river going across a floodplain. The river doesn't ever jump from one bit of the floodplain to a completely different bit of the floodplain. It's got to meander by changing what's already there. So the patterns in it become more pronounced. That's how brains grow. And so the, the question for any of us thinking about our own excellence is what are the patterns in my brain and how can i help them grow not what are the patterns missing from my brain and how can i acquire them but what are the ones i've got how can i take them seriously how can i build them into something more powerful and the first step in that is of course is to answer the question what are they what are my what are my patterns what are what where where do i have unforced clarity of of action where can i see what needs to be done other people can't see it the same way Where am I on fire? Where does time fly? What are those super positive experiences? Now, um, you say all of that, and there's still a significant proportion of people in the world who go, that's happy clappy talk. Stop being nice. Success is hard work, and therefore it must be miserable. And you go, well, hang on again. Okay, two different categories. Hard work, yes. It's very hard to get good at something you're already good at because the margins get really small and the incremental improvement is harder and harder and harder and harder and harder to find but that doesn't make that
0: miserable that just makes Well it hard. And the other thing I would say about that is first of all we're not very good judges of our own progress and you talk about there's actually a whole piece in here one of the lies about our ability to rate people but but the other part of it is there are things I do in my life that, and maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe this isn't, you'll, you'll tell me how much this does or doesn't fit in the work context where I sort of enjoy them and that's why I do them. And I'm not really thinking that hard about, am I getting better? And, you know, like writing, I don't know if I'm getting any better. I think I probably am, but I'm not necessarily writing to try to get better at writing. I'm writing, I mean, just to put it on the table, cause I have shit to say. Right, and, I, and I'm hoping the shit will matter to somebody. And if it makes a difference to somebody, that would be wonderful. But I'm not necessarily writing to get better. And so I guess, is, it, does, is this predicated on the notion that my motivation for doing something is always improvement? No, um, I think it's predicated on the notion that the things, you, the things you enjoy
1: doing, you will do more. And that doing yes. something is necessary to be better at it versus yes.
0: not doing it. And that's probably on a sliding scale. Um, right. The, the person it, that surfs five times a day is going to be a better surfer than the person okay. who surfs once a week. In general. So, uh, you know, it's always in general. I mean, the
1: 10,000 hours thing, you remember the, the 10,000 hours thing, and yeah, it's a study of violinists, and they discover that the ones who practice 10,000 hours are more accomplished and more, more of them go on to be professionals than the ones who don't. Um, but it's actually. Uh, it's 10,000 hours plus or minus about 4,000 hours. Mm. So actually what you finish up saying is in general, it's better, which it's still a thing. There's still a pattern there, but it's not like you sit down, and this is to exaggerate, of course, but it's not like you sit down at the beginning of your 9,000 999th hour of practice, and you go, in 60 minutes from now, I'm going to be great. It's going to happen for me. It's finally going to happen for me. It's finally going to happen. It's finally yeah. going to half past 12.
0: Um, but, you know, there's the so- thing that this is all pointing to is, you know, this idea of different, of niching down, of focusing on what makes you uniquely you. We get told to be well-rounded. We get told the pathway to success is to fit in. And look, I may be reading your book with the lens that I have because the, I just look at the world this way. But the truth is, it's the people who are different that make the biggest difference. They're the ones that break new ground, right? It's also, and look, this may make it sound like I've lived in California too long, but you know, hang with me for a sec. You and I want to be loved, not just for what we're the same about, but we actually want to be loved for what we feel makes us special and unique and and us. We want to be loved for our different. We want to be loved for what we think is unique and special about us, not that's just the same as everybody else. And so there's something deeply human Rooted in unearthing oh these God, yes. law, these lies. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> have I gone too far? Did I lose you? I bet, am I living I in Santa know. Cruz it's, too long? It's it's um, but there's the corollary as well.
1: So let you know. Let's talk about love. So we all want to be loved for what's what's great about us and appreciated for what we, we think our our contribution to the world is. Um, but we also want to be forgiven for the things that we're not so good at and and when you when you when you encounter somebody who can see you for who you are who can love the best bits and forgive the rest then you've then you've got a wonderful relationship in the world because we're not being all sort of remediating the whole time so it it's it's the it's the both and there you go I brought you halfway back across the country again
0: I love it and you know it's funny that you bring this up um we recently uh, did an episode with a gal who is um, the single most effective executive I've ever known or even heard about. And um, a dear friend and the two of us were essentially two in a box together in my last CMO gig. Her name's Sue Barsami, and she went on to run all sales and all marketing for HP's enterprise business. I mean, she's a seriously non-trivial executive (laughs) And, and the interesting thing is um, my partnership with her was the best partnership I ever had in business. And a big part of it is exactly what you described because she knew everywhere I sucked. And I mean, I suck painfully and embarrassingly in many areas. I am a deeply, deeply disproportionate person. And, and, that that can, you can be ashamed of that you can be embarrassed about you, can, but in order to be effective, you have to work with people who know those things about you and accept them and compensate for them.
1: Yeah, right?
0: and, and that's uh, an incredibly powerful thing that you almost never hear about in business, Ashlyn.
1: Well, and it's funny in the extension of it, we talk about I think a little bit later on um, when we talk about the reason that we follow people. The reason there are these folks called leaders in the world. And say, you know, what we follow is what they're great at. Um, We follow the spikes, if you like. That's actually the attractive force that's drawing us to another human being. And the corollary of that is that we forgive them their shortcomings. And so to follow is to forgive. Okay, now there's an interesting observation at the world. This is why leaders are kind of annoying, because we know we're following them, we know what the spikes are, that's great and uplifting, oh my God, this person is so good at this, so great at this. And ah, oh, they, they really don't ever do this, do they? I wish they would. Um, you know, our wishes our wishes contain our well-rounded people, but you don't find it in the actual humans. And so the choice is, do you lean into what's great and forgive what isn't? Or do you wander around in this weird hypothetical world where we can actually repair people and make them all shiny and well-rounded and, to my mind, completely boring? Well, I'm glad we live in the real world. I'm glad it's got spiky people in. That's the best bit.
0: Yeah, and and, um, there are a lot of people who don't need to be unfucked. Well, right. Like I, I, I'll tell you what I had. You know, I had this opportunity. There there are people now who are claiming to be able to do various things to you and with you and with various treatments and whatever, whatever, whatever to maybe not cure dyslexia, but certainly, you know, there, there 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 are people who are proclaiming through one method or another that they can materially change your dyslexia and and so i've looked into this and read about it and some of it seems credible or interesting or I, I what do i know right and i i understand neuroplasticity as a layman and so i you know i get that these that things are possible and this and that and so forth at the same time Ashley, there's not a snowball's chance in fucking hell i'm going to do any of that
1: right right
0: well, why not why not because um it's what's broken it's look, it's Leonard Cohen. there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, right? The surfboard that's a, that's a little cracked and maybe took on some water and now's a little heavier but like for whatever reason that was the secret ingredient. like we just don't know what makes what and so I know how it is now. I I, I got the bad and I got the good and I understand it and it's okay with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna let the broken thing keep going. <laughs>
1: yeah which is because and it goes all the way back to because let's imagine that we repair the broken thing we 've ignored the great things and and the great things is where you 're having fun and where the rest of us are having fun spending time with you. so um, it would be it would be silly to fixate on what doesn 't work unless we're back in the airplane business unless that's going to cause a painful disaster for people. But most of the stuff at work. Some people don't describe me as a painful disaster, actually. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't in their mouths. Um, what's well, the other thing that's like weird and frustrating is is that we we imagine that most stuff like most stuff at work is like the airplane and we've got to fix it so it's safe. But actually, no, most stuff at work is like the human, and humans aren't airplanes, people aren't toasters. Um you don't improve them by fixing them. And you gotta you gotta find the good bits and you gotta find how to turn the good bits up to eleven. And by the way, that starts with each of us. Because no you know, you know what's going on inside your head. I have no idea. Um, and and vice versa. So we've we've each you know, we we have so many years on the planet. Um I would want every child um leaving school to be confronting the question. What's my gig? What's my? Where's my buzz? Where's my energy? What am I running towards? And having someone sit down with them and go, never lose that, for God's sake, and know it. And by the way, your lazy description of it, because it's roughly this and roughly this and roughly this, is not good enough. Get precise. Get super precise about what it is that what it is that fires you up because no one else is going to do that work for you. And if you do that work, by the way, it won't change enormously over life. It'll branch in interesting directions, but it won't become a completely opposite thing in a completely different walk of life. But that's your lifeline. That's, and I don't mean lifeline to save you. I mean a line through life. So pull on that. Get, take it seriously and ignore all the people who only ever join the line of people saying fix what's broken because they're wrong.
0: I love it. Anything else you want to touch on, Ashley? Oh, goodness
1: me. I think we covered a lot. Should we talk about Monty Python again?
0: (laughs) Hey, I'd love to have you back, and we can uh, dig more into the book and dig more into Monty Python. You and I could probably do uh, several hours on Monty Python together. (laughs) I think so,
1: because there's one about an abattoir that really is just a classic. Oh, uh, I, I don't. Right now, that one's not triggering in my whiskey-stained uh, no, brain. Well, it's it's probably been obliterated from your mind altogether. But uh, no, yes. for
0: some reason, as you were talking, my
1: my I was leaping into Life of Brian. <laughs> oh well, yes, you see, I'm like, Brian,
0: and so she, so's me wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes,
1: and they're all wearing strange beards, and then there's the whole stoning thing. Yes, you have to. By the way, now people listening to this who haven't seen Life of Brian are going, what on earth are these two talking about? It sounds horrible. Yeah. Um, Well, the good news is nobody listens, so we're okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. So we're perfectly safe. Well, listen, thanks for having me on. It's been great fun.
0: Uh, Ashley, you're awesome. I really want to thank you for writing this book too. I'm a fanboy. I think it's a really fun, insightful book. Um, I I hope a million or more people buy it. It's fantastic. And uh, I hope to have you back. You're awesome. Well, just let me know when I'll be right here. Thank you, brother. Cheers, mate. There he is, Ashley Goodall. Nine lies about work. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Now, I want to ask you, are you planning for legendary success? Because part of being legendary means knowing your numbers. And today, more than ever, you want to be on top of the seminal numbers that drive the growth of your business. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. Imagine having every critical number, all the metrics that you need to manage and grow your business on your smartphone, on your tablet, of course, on your computer, anytime, anywhere. NetSuite makes that happen. One of the key components of NetSuite are awesome dashboards that allow you to stay on top of sales, finance, accounting, orders, inventory, uh, HR, and more. There's a reason a disproportionate number of the companies that have been going public lately run NetSuite. And NetSuite is available to you, and it's surprisingly cost-effective. Visit NetSuite at netsuite.com different. And because you're a listener to this podcast, NetSuite is offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com different. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business, and with NetSuite, you're always going to know. All right, we would like to thank the awesome new book by our friend and guest today, Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world, Ashley Goodall. Pick it up, it's a great read, it's a fun read. ORG where you can dream, plan, and live your best life. And I would love it if you joined us for our annual conference in October of 2019 in beautiful Long Beach, California. For more information about the conference, go to the number one LifeFullyLive.org slash CLockhead. I'll be speaking there, and I'd love to see you. also want to tell you about my friends at RollWorks. This is an account-based marketing platform for ambitious B2B marketers who want to choreograph uh, high-performance, result-producing campaigns. Check out RollWorks.com. I also want to tell you, speaking of things for legendary marketers, I have a new marketing podcast coming out soon called Lockhead on Marketing. And um, it's very different than this podcast. It's much shorter, um, uh, one topic per episode, a lot of solo episodes where we get into what is legendary marketing? Why does it matter? How does marketing produce legendary results that drive growth? Uh, Of course, we talk about category creation and category design and a whole lot of other things that I think are on the minds of a lot of marketers. So stay tuned for more information on the upcoming podcast Lockhead on Marketing. I also wanna tell you about my good friends at bottleneck.online. Uh, these are the folks that are delivering uh, virtual assistant power to you it's a perfect way to scale yourself and therefore scale your business check out my friends at bottleneck.online also growwire.com this is what legendary entrepreneurial people are reading today check them out growwire.com and if you are one of our uh, many new listeners apparently we're growing in Australia who knew Uh, In Australia, you want to do legendary marketing there? Check out my good friends at rapidmedia.com.au. And if you want to make a difference in the world, Habitat for Humanity. These are the folks trying to deliver uh, a good place to live for everybody. Check out habitat.org today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Uh, warning, this podcast tends to go better with libations. <laughs> if you must email us, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Uh, I'll tell you, we are getting mobbed right now. We're doing everything we can to respond to emails and social uh, links and, and tweets and, and so forth and so on. And if we miss you, uh, we apologize. We're doing our best. <laughs> Support lo- Global Happiness by John's Crazy Socks at Socks.com. Be a podcast legend. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love don't forget in the united states in many states going slow in the left-hand lane is against the law don't be lame get out of the passing lane and uh, don't forget the road to success is always under construction all right thank you candy dandy i love you mom and dad and hey colin this podcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to richard c kelly chairman of pacific gas and electric sorry dick We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, It really does um, uh, make a difference. Uh, Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.